We try to help salespeople make more money and close more deals. You're working on that new startup. The process of evaluating co-founders and management team at a startup is more ad hoc and more real time. How do you build a strong management team? It's much more, how's it working right now? How's it going to work next week? From sea level to staff, how do you motivate them? You have to not reprimand people who try something new and fail at it. This is the Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, the language of business looks at why investors prefer an A-rated management team with a B-rated plan over an A-rated plan with a B-rated management team. Here's our host, Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Our first guest is John Murphy. He's a master's degree in accounting and is an associate at Point Judith Capital, where he supports the investment process and oversees investor reporting. A lot of his time is spent putting together a strong management team for his portfolio companies. At Point Judith Capital, where he supports the investment process and oversees investor reporting. A lot of his time is spent putting together a strong management team for his portfolio companies. John, welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. So given your extensive background in financial analysis and reporting, how have you made the jump to being an associate at a venture capital firm? Yeah, so quick background on myself. I started at Grant Thornton, which is one of the international public accounting firms, focused more on the middle market. And I was working with two different types of clients. I was working with early stage technology clients and I was working with venture capital clients, also private equity, but primarily venture capital. And so I got to see both sides of the business. I got to see the inner workings of an early stage technology company and I also got to see the investor side. And when I was at Grant Thornton, one of the new pronouncements that came out was FAS 157. And so I got very involved in business valuation and learning how to approach business valuation from a gap reporting perspective. How many years ago was that? That was two years ago that I left Grant Thornton to join Point Judith. So I was at Grant Thornton for four years. That skill set was something that allowed me to get into Point Judith was they were looking for somebody that understood the reporting side sure, of business valuation. Sure, and you could, you could capitalize on what you were doing at Grant Thornton. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I could use that skill set to add value to Point Judith, but also they were looking for somebody who had some experience with early stage technology companies that was able to come in and kind of learn the process of investing. So you've been at Point Judith now for two years. What is the composition of your team when making investment decisions? We're a fairly small firm. We have five employees. There's three general partners, myself and one additional person. And so every Monday we have an investment committee meeting that comprised of the three general partners and myself. And making investment decisions is really a vote of the three general partners. They have equal ownership in the business. And there's a long process that comes to the point of making, you know, weeks and weeks of Of diligence and things like that. But the actual decision making is made at investment committee between the three partners. And I'm there to kind of support anything that of course. that goes on yeah. with that process. So today's segment is focused on the management team. And at what point in the investment process do you begin focusing on the team that you're assembling? That's probably one of the most important things about making an investment is who the team currently is and what they're looking at in terms of who they want to hire and what their network looks like and, and who they can bring in. So I think it's a fundamental piece of the investment process. Is but does this happen at the beginning? Does this happen when you have had them do their dog and pony show initially? You know, what point have they presented to you two, three, four times that you start focusing on the management team? I think it's the first thing we focus on. It's right at the beginning 
first time you meet with the CEO, you're evaluating them and their network and the management team. And, and how are you defining the management team? Yeah, I think of the management team as not just CEO, but CEO, CTO, chief revenue officer, yeah. you know, C-level, but also some VP level, depending on the company and what stage they're at. So it's really the team that's going to be directing the strategy and the vision of the company. And when you go to review performance, at what point is the management team's evaluation considered either pre-investment or post-investment? It's an ongoing thing. It's not like a set time that we will get together and discuss metrics for the management team. The partners will take board seats on all the company's board of directors, and they'll have monthly meetings where they'll sit and go through with the board of directors and the management team a debrief of how things have been going. I'm Greg Stoller, and my guest is John Murphy, an associate at Point Judith Capital, early stage venture capital firm. Do you set metrics for the individual executives, and then how do you interpret those results? I don't think there's any specific metrics that we look at, but it's more just execution and how they've been. Obviously, the CEO has a different role than the CTO versus the head of sales and marketing. So I I do think each individual executive has a different scope that they're looked at under. If the technology is struggling, but they're seeming to have really good traction with customers, we're going to look at the CTO or the VP of engineering, as opposed to there's a great technology, it's really well built, it's working great, but they can't seem to get it out to the market. We're going to look more to the sales executives and the CEO. And when you need to make changes, do you bring in professional management or simply replace existing talent on a one-for-one basis? Uh, It definitely depends. So if the company has somebody that can step into that role, that's obviously the preferred thing is keeping something within the company. But a lot of times that, you know, with early stage companies, There's only so many employees in the company, so we'll reach out to our network and also ask the management team to reach out to their network and the board to reach out to their network, and we'll find somebody that has significant experience in that area that can bring that to the table and help the company. So if the firm is struggling from a marketing perspective, are you inclined to meet with the vice president of marketing and his or her team one-on-one, or do you tend to meet only with the CEO or the senior vice presidents and then have them dispense with their own team the guidance that you're giving? It usually happens at the board level, so it's not really our place to be stepping in and managing the company. That's the CEO's job. So it's addressed at the board level, and you know there's recommendations that are made to the CEO, but at the end of the day, it's the company that is responsible for making those changes. For implementing those. And what you're saying is you could tell the CEO, we strongly believe that you should do X, Y, and Z, but ultimately he or she might decide that a variant of that approach is appropriate. Right, exactly. Compared with other likely large employers you've worked with, for example, Grant Thornton, do you think the evaluation of the management team for a startup should be treated differently? It's the same general principles, but the way that it's done is different. I think at a larger company, it's usually a quarterly or annual review process. In a startup, it's more ongoing because everything's more real-time, and any delays in the process can really cause some issues for the business. So I think it's more real-time, it's more regular, and it's communicated a lot more frequently than in maybe a larger corporation where one individual person maybe isn't driving as much value for the company. So are you suggesting, without putting words in your mouth, that at a startup it's more by gut feel than whereas with larger employers it's more of an official institutionalized process? I mean, I would say it's a little bit of both. At the board level, it's very well documented and it's ensured that it's not just a gut feeling that there's a bunch of people sitting around the board. It's definitely at the board level of a Grant Thornton company or at the board level of even a Point Judith Capital at, investment? I would say at the board level of Point Judith Capital right. investment. So do your board meetings tend to have an air of we're on the same team or at times do they get a little bit controversial if things aren't going as planned? The goal is always to have the, the right. feeling of we're on the same team. But there are issues that come up that need to be discussed. And, you know, it does get a little bit adversarial at times. But the goal is not 
to be adversarial for the sake of being adversarial. The goal is to build the business. And, and you're not trying to knock the company out of the box. Even if it's exactly. one of 10 portfolio companies you've invested in, you're really trying to make sure that every one of the 10 are going to be successful. Yeah, exactly. And, and it all comes back to hoping and driving the business to be successful. So if there's a change that needs to be made on the management level, it gets brought up at the board meetings. But at the end of the day, it's not just because we're a venture capitalist and we want right, to come in and change right. the management team. It's because we're really trying to drive the largest business possible and the well, most value. Well, thanks, John. John Murphy from Point Judith Capital. Coming up, your salespeople can make more money with effective one-to-one emails than they can with a blast. But first, resetting your goals and motivating employees when the change isn't your idea, but a new government regulation as the language of business continues. Back to Greg Stoller. Alessandra DeVaca has 35 years of human resources experience in publishing and in healthcare. In her current role, As Chief Administrative Officer at Hebrew Senior Life, the largest provider of elder care in the Boston metropolitan area, she not only oversees a large staff internally, but also nearly 75 volunteers. Alessandra, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What are the biggest challenges you've noticed in healthcare over your 15-year tenure in the industry? The industry has been faced with quite a few challenges and changes. If I were to categorize the biggest three or four, I would say the first is definitely a variety of changes in sort of the regulatory environment. It feels like every day we get a new set of regs that we need to comply with. That coupled with the need for additional transparency about quality of care in the healthcare industry. You know, customers want to know, are they getting the best care possible? And we have to report and publish data about different metrics that we keep track of in healthcare. And how are you defining your customers? Are these going to be residents? Patients and residents. Patients and residents. Right. Okay. The other changes I would say that have occurred is technology has had a huge impact on how care is delivered, the roles that healthcare workers play, the job descriptions that they have, the way we're reimbursed and paid for our services has changed dramatically. Dramatically, yes, <laughs> yes. sure. So, so um, that's a big change. And then the other thing I would say is there's a variety of labor challenges and shortages, whether it was the nursing shortage that we heard about 10 years ago. Now there's no primary care physicians and sure. geriatricians, which are very important to us. So if you look at this holistically, how much of this has been voluntary change? It's probably a 60-40 split. I mean, uh, obviously... 60 on what side? 60 mandated change, 40 40 voluntary. voluntary. Technology is not something that was mandated, nor were labor shortages, but certainly the regulatory environment, payment and reimbursement changes were definitely imposed by... State or federal and has governments. technology been a net positive or a net negative? Definitely a net positive, but it requires a lot of change in the workflow of the environment and people getting, like doctors and nurses getting, and even CNAs, etc., getting used to using technology. And I assume this is well beyond the electronic medical record. The electronic medical record is a big part of that. Well, that means that doctors have to do their business definitely. Their productivity is tracked. They have, the quality of metrics are tracked, things that they were not accustomed to in the past, and that holds true for all of the clinical staff. So I think that getting used to using technology and to then maximize sort of their productivity and while very importantly keeping the quality of care up is really a new way of doing things for many people. It's a completely new dynamic. Very new. So I know that you have over 2,000 employees. Mm -hmm. How do you evaluate their success from the executive level all the way down? Not the same way. Of course. Uh, so, so, really? <laughs> so we have broadly group employees into what we call job families. So, okay. for example, cooks and housekeepers and engineers and maintenance folks might be one job family. And then there's sort of a senior management team that's another. There's a group of clinicians. So we have different sort of approaches and criteria for the different job families that exist within the organization. 
holistically, I would say that there's some technical criteria, and then there's some sort of softer skills that we assess. So how much of it is qualitative, how much of it is quantitative, or some combination? I would say at a frontline level, it's more quantitative and some qualitative. Customer service or ability to work as part of a team are definitely qualities that we look for, whether you're a housekeeper or whether you're the CEO. Right. But it gets less and less quantitative and harder to pin down quantitatively the more senior you are in the organization's. And what sort of metrics do you use for senior members of the organization? For the senior management team, which in our case is about 60 people, there's sort of three components to how we assess our managers and leaders. There's some technical skills that we look for. So everybody has to be able to put, for example, together a budget and have financial management right. skills and read a PL and those kinds of things. Then there's another bucket that is associated with goals that we've established. So about two to three years ago, executive leadership team and eventually the senior leadership team got together and established a set of five goals. And each one of us, based on those five goals, has a set of annual or year or two goals that we have to achieve as part of our performance and responsibility. So, you know, the marketing person has to make sure that they keep occupancy at a certain level or something like that. So that's one bucket of how we're assessed is in addition to the technical skill is how well we did in achieving the particular goals that were set out. These goals, by the way, are reviewed by the CEO and our board on an annual basis. And then there's sort of the third bucket, which is, in my opinion, the hardest to pin down and the softest, which is uh, leadership abilities and skills. So we've done quite a bit of work in the last two to three years on sort of setting expectations what Hebrew Senior, on what Hebrew Senior Life expects for their leaders and from their leaders. So we look in for leaders things like modeling the way, challenging current processes. And you know, staying as innovative as Staying as innovative as you can. Leading from the heart is very important for us. So in the sort of part of our appraisal where we assess those types of criteria, it's a little less quantitative and, and more, more soft qualitative. And more skills that you, were, that you were talking mm-hmm. to before. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Alessandra DeVaca, a chief administrative officer. She spends a lot of time thinking how to innovate the human resources function. Our first guest, John Murphy, indicated the approach to evaluating talent at a startup is different than what's used at an established company. Where do you come out in this question? There's some overlap and there's some differences. How so? Qualities of great leaders are the same irregardless of what industry you're in. For example, we do a two-day management development program for all of our managers at the organization. And we talk about five leaders. We talk about Nelson Mandela, Bill Belichick, Steve Jobs, and Mother Teresa. Right. <laughs> and, so, and there are some qualities that all of those leaders have, certainly challenging the way that uh, right. the current process Which are going to go across industries right. and everything else. I think that those things are probably somewhat similar, although the emphasis on how much you need of particular skills may be different in a startup environment than it is in an established organization like ours. But yet, Hebrew Senior Life, by all accounts, is regarded as an innovative employer. Mm-hmm. This would indicate that some of your new initiatives might feel like entrepreneurship or internal entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Does this mean you'll be changing the evaluation metrics you'll be using? We will for some people or some groups of people, for sure. And we've already seen some of that in the last couple of years as we made some pretty significant changes in the organization. So we opened a new campus, by example, a few years ago. And where was that? In Dedham. And the way we deliver healthcare on the campus is quite different than how we do it at sort of our flagship in Roslindale. The way those employees assess some of that criteria has definitely changed. As we try to spurn further 
growth and change and challenging the processes that we have in place, we definitely, for certain people, put more emphasis on those criteria than others. So how do you change an established employee base? Because new employees, obviously, by default, aren't Mm -hmm. going to be jaded by what they might have been experiencing in the organization. Mm -hmm. How do you take your established employee base and get them to think more entrepreneurially at all levels? First of all, you have to model the way. So you have to tell people and set the expectation that we want you to challenge the current processes in a reasonable way. Of course, right. <laughs> so, and you have to appreciate and reward those that do. And I actually think... That Is that you, just financially or those through other rewards as I well? think actually in healthcare, we don't have a lot of options to reward financially beyond certain sort of certain expectations. It's just saying thank you. It's rewarding people in different ways, whether it's publicly or giving them some appreciation awards, those kinds of things. But even more importantly, you have to not reprimand people who try something new and fail at it. Because if you do that, the person sitting next to them is it's never going to try anything new. They're going to try anything so, new at all. They're going to so, say, look what happened to that person. And you have to set the expectation that it's okay to challenge the process. We want you to. And there are people that know how to do that and people that are nervous about that. When we talk about the criteria of what we look for in leaders at Hebrew Senior Life, we don't want the kinds of leaders in particular roles that aren't willing to let their employees push the boundaries a little bit. I think it's wonderful that you guys want to treat your employees from both the executive level all the way down to the staff level in that innovative fashion. Thank you. That was great. Alessandra DeVaca, Chief Administrative Officer of HSL on Motivating Employees. Next up on the Language of Business, your salespeople can make more money with effective one-to-one emails than they can with a blast. Next on the Language of Business, our sponsor is Choose to Be Nice. It's a social movement dedicated to encouraging and inspiring kindness wherever and whenever possible. Choose to Be Nice is improving the way people interact with one another by reminding them that they have a choice about how to be in the world. And it all starts with a promise. Check it out at choosetobenice.com. You're listening to the Language Business Podcast. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. With specialties in sales, product development, startups, fundraising, and as he puts it, doing whatever it takes, great line, Matthew Bellows is my next guest. He has over 20 years of work experience, much of which has been spent developing companies or advising them. He's the founder and CEO of Yesware, which finds out who opens your emails and clicks on your links. Matthew, welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks, Greg. I think your products are terrific, but do you ever get any pushback from people concerned, their email reading habits, and click-through history are analyzed? We have about 200,000 customers. Given that size, we have very few complaints, but we take them all very seriously. We take security and privacy issues to the heart of the company. Can anybody ever shut this off? Yeah. Receivers have control over whether or not they receive these emails and whether or not they receive the tracking portion of them. And how long does it take for a salesperson to install this and turn it on? It takes about 15 seconds. You can do it yourself at yesware.com. Excellent. And how is Yesware different from traditional CRM systems like Salesforce? Yesware integrates in with Gmail and actually helps a salesperson do their job better. So we try to help salespeople make more money and close more deals. Traditional CRM systems are much more for the management to see what's going on in the systems. We take the approach of helping the salesperson and aggregating their data back into the CRM. And I assume that you can piggyback onto Gmail even if you have a proprietary or private email account. Yes, exactly. Gmail or Google Apps accounts. So the idea being that it would be seamless to whoever is reading those emails in terms of sending out a sales flyer or something of that ilk. Yeah, so the emails that Yesware helps you with come from your account, 
from your business account or your personal account. So the idea being that if you were announcing version number two of a new software product, you would send that out to 500 of your potential customers, and you could very quickly find out how many of them opened the email, how many of them want to click through the attachments or stuff so, uh, like that. So right? that's a traditional marketing email service that lots of companies, HubSpot and Constant Contact in the area and lots of other marketing services right. provide. We focus much more on the one-to-one communication between the salesperson and the prospect or the salesperson and the customer. We're less concerned with big email blasts and much more focused on the one-to-one relationship. So, and what would be an example of the one-to-one relationship? So let's say your company sends out a proposal, uh, an announcement of a new feature. Right. Then you, the salesperson, get the email back. Here's how it could work, a proposal about how my particular company could use your software. We have a relationship. I write you back, you write me back, I ask you a question, you would give me the answer quickly, etc. Makes perfect sense. So I know Yesware is not only your third startup, but also one that features a similar founding team. Is that because success breeds success? I hope that's true anyway. Right. <laughs> but that's really because Cashman and I have been through the startup ringer together. This is Cashman Andrus. Cashman Andrus is a co-founder and CTO yep. of Yesware. And we started a business back in 2001 called Wireless Gaming Review. And we sold that business to CNET in 2004. So having been through that bootstrap, get going, hire people, sell a company together, we kind of knew we could trust each other to do another one. But I guess that begs the question, should you be introducing new blood into the founding team so that having too much familiarity is not potentially jading you? We actually did introduce a third co-founder at the start of the business called a gentleman named Rajat Bhargavat. And he is a serial entrepreneur, went to MIT and started several businesses here and has been really helpful in terms of scaling our business. And is also providing a fresh perspective for you and Cashman. Exactly. And then i got to say, the management team that has joined Yesware since also keeps us on our toes. But after all of these years of working together, how do you evaluate one another? The process of evaluating co-founders and management team at a startup, as you've said in the previous episodes, is uh, really more ad hoc and more real-time than at a bigger company where there's review cycles and paperwork to fill out. It's much more of a sense of how's it working right now? How did it work yesterday? In the here and now. How did it work? How's it going to work next week? Because the time frames are so compressed. The thing about this founding team and particularly the management team we've built up uh, recently is that we all are pushing each other to be better. And that is, in effect, the sort of drive that makes us all improve. So are you able to ask each other to change your work habits, or with three founders, is it so small that, frankly, replacing one of them, even buying them out, might be a more effective option? That would be the last resort. With the founding team and with the management team we've got assembled, that's not really the approach. The approach is really like, how do we help each other get better? We're just starting a formal 360-degree review process uh, where we use outside software to gather feedback about each other. And we're always trying to encourage each other to be better as opposed to sort of slot people in and out. But if it's 360 degrees, who's above you? Your board? Yeah. I have uh, board members, customers, and advisors sort of from the outside of the company, and then executives and individual contributors who are reviewing me from below. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Matthew Bellows, who is a serial entrepreneur and one with a similar founding team. Let's transition to personnel in the lower-level functions. How does the evaluation process work for them? Is it still ad hoc, to borrow a phrase from you, or is it more institutionalized? We're only 25 people. 
at the end of last year, we were 18. Right. So we're small, growing quickly. There actually are very few lower levels. In fact, I would say... Some pretty flat organizations. We're all one team trying to get this done. And so at the moment, we don't need organizational structure particularly or formal review processes. I'm just starting the 360-degree review process just to experiment right, on myself. See how it works. See how right, it works. Right. But for everyone on the team, it's really, are you doing your work? Is it happening? And does everyone else feel like you're contributing as much as you can? We have a very loose oversight. So, for example, we have no vacation policy. Our vacation policy is take as many days as you need. The flip side of that is that the team is figuring out, is this person contributing their weight or not? Right. And are they overdoing it? Are they abusing the privilege? Yes. Or are they, are they following the and, and, and right, we, startup line? It's supposed to the company line. Yeah, right. exactly. And we do fire people. So when things aren't working out, we definitely let people go. But it's much more of a group process. So in both good times and bad, how much do you communicate to the entire 18 or now 25 people, frankly, what's happening in the company? I am as open as I can possibly be. <laughs> about what's going on in the company. If you're worried about funding not coming through in round X, subsequent round X, or you yep. got a particularly good piece of feedback or yep. bad piece of feedback about the latest yep. iteration of the software, you're basically an open book? I basically share all of that stuff. People figure it out anyway, and I really hope that everybody knows what's going on, which reduces all kinds of internal Strife. Strife, right. gossip, you know, resentment, confusion. And so by being as open as I can about how the board meeting went yesterday, how the customer meeting went, what the you know, advisor said to me yesterday, then that encourages everyone else to be open so there's much better sharing of information. I sincerely wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks, Greg. Matthew Bellows. Thanks, Greg. That's Matthew Bellows, CEO of Yesware. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We publish a new episode every Tuesday. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.